Well, before we focus our attention on the Lord's table this morning, I want us to depart from our study of 2 Peter this morning and turn to a passage that we have looked at in the past, but it has been on my heart in recent days, and I, I pray that this morning it will focus your hearts on the things that God would have for us through this communion. And I want us to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Because chapter 9 is ultimately dealing with worship. This Lord's Day is the day that we are going to celebrate together the Lord's table. And the Lord's table is more than just remembrance. It's more than just a time where we come together and remember what Jesus Christ has accomplished as He set that practice in perpetuity until He comes back in the Gospels. It's more than that. It's, It's about a deep, heartfelt worship. It's about the worship of God. In fact, that's why we gather as a visible body of Jesus Christ. That's why we are here this morning. It is because we are commanded by God in His Word, to corporately worship our Savior together. In fact, inherent in the very word church, the Greek word ekklesia, inherent in the very word itself is the idea of assembly. That's what it means, an assembly. And that implies that the body of Jesus Christ cannot worship as God the Father intends us to worship without coming together locally. That is simply to say we are not an assembly of God when we are personally isolated. We are not an assembly of God, an ecclesia, when we are not together. That doesn't mean that we aren't to individually worship God every day in all that we do, but God has designed a special way for His name to be glorified and honored, and for our lives to be enriched as we gather together to worship. So when you come to the book of Hebrews, you quickly notice that the writer of Hebrews teaches us about so many tangible blessings that we have as Christians from our times of corporate worship. In fact, we are exhorted in Hebrews chapter 10, we are commanded, it is a command in chapter 10, to never forsake our time together. The word forsake is an emphatic word. Inkatalipo is the word in the original language. It really carries the idea of desertion idea of desertion, this, this willing desertion, this remaining, this abandonment, if you will, this willing abandonment of worship. Why? Why does God use such strong language there? Because God has designed this time together in such a way so that each of us are stimulated by others And we are used by God as stimulants in the lives of others for greater love and righteousness. As he says, their good deeds 
reflections of God's character to one another, righteous living. And therefore, nothing is better and nothing is more important than what we ultimately do when we are corporately together. That is, we worship Jesus Christ. That's why we exist. That's why we have come together. This is why God has created us. This is what we have been created for by God. God created us for worship. And we worship God the Father through the worship of God the Son. We give glory to God by giving glory to the Son, Jesus Christ. And that is what we will do, by the way, for all eternity. Since we have a relationship with Christ, we will worship. So, if you have no love for worship now, if you do not desire worship, the worship of God together, or if you allow sin to keep you from worship now and have in your heart no sadness, no shame before a holy God as you think about your relationship to Him, then I would suggest in like manner that you should have no confidence in your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't love worship, if you have no sense of sadness in your missing out on worship, then you need to really think about what Paul said to the Corinthian believers. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Because it is worship that we will love to do forever. So as Christians, we are worshipers. And it's the body and blood of Christ that opens the door of that worship to us. It is Jesus Christ. It is His sacrifice. It is His shedding of blood. It is His giving of Himself on behalf of sinners like us that opens the door of true worship to us. We understand that external religious ritual can never accomplish true worship. We understand why. Because it is a clear conscience that is needed for true worship. Jesus said to the woman at the well, God is looking for true worshipers, those who worship in spirit and in truth. You cannot follow the lie and live the lie and claim to be a worshiper. The author of Hebrews is driving that point home in chapter 9. He's doing it by showing the inadequacy of the Old Covenant to truly cover, or truly clear, I should say, a guilty conscience. The inadequacy of the Old Covenant to clear a guilty conscience. And he is comparing that kind of worship to the complete adequacy of the New Testament covenant in Christ. That which accomplishes the perfection that we all need. Now I want to begin this morning by reading for us the first 14 verses of chapter 9. And then we'll just walk ourselves through this text and draw out some implications. We're really going to I want to hone in really a little bit 
in the end in 11 through 14. But we're going to walk through the first 13 verses just the same because it, or first 10 verses, because it gives us some groundwork in light of that comparison. You can follow along Hebrews chapter nine, verses one to 14. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod, which budded and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Now, when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters, and he does that once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is signifying this that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest, a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The inadequacy of the old in comparison with the new is set before us in those verses. And it's a comparison about worship. Worship in the Old Testament tabernacle is seen in the first ten verses. They're there laid out for us. And it's being compared to the worship of and through Jesus Christ in the new covenant. And the first five verses give us a glimpse at the setup of this earthly tabernacle. If you want a, a full detailed view of the setup, you can go to Exodus chapter 24 and 25 and read extensively on the setup of the tabernacle. But it is clear here in verses 1 through 5 that the old covenant tabernacle, at least until the time of it being built in Jerusalem, was a portable place. It was something that Israel would pack up when God wanted them to move, and they would take it with them. It was portable. 
And even after it was a fixture in Israel, its location, like the tabernacle and the wanderings of the wilderness, its location in proximity to the people of Israel was always the same. It was placed in the geographical center of the tribes of Israel. The tribes would encamp themselves around the four wall, outer walls of what we'll see was the court of the tabernacle. Right, So it was in the geographical center, both in the wilderness wanderings as well as when God gave the tribes their land. It was built in Jerusalem. Now, just for our own understanding, as we think about this this morning, you notice that the writer of Hebrews says it was all made according to regulations. Right, Verse 1, now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. So how God was to be worshipped was specifically laid out, and the building and the edifice in which that worship took place was perfectly planned by God. And we know from the Old Testament that early on, Part of the tabernacle, if you read Exodus 24 and 25, part of the tabernacle area was made up of these linen walls, these curtain walls, if you will, that were set up as a courtyard around the tabernacle building or edifice, if you will, this place where there were two rooms, the holy place and the holy of holies. Those outer walls formed what was called the court of the tabernacle. So when it came to the tabernacle, if you were not a priest, if you were not part of the priestly line, the court of the tabernacle was as far as you could go in your worship, as far as you could go in proximity to being near where God was. You couldn't go any farther into the area enclosed by those cloth walls. And you really couldn't go very far even into that area. You could only go as far as the altar, which was just inside that outer curtain area. So as an act of worship, you would bring your sacrifice, normally an animal, uh, something that was of great cost to you. You would bring that to the priest and it's there that you would symbolically place, you would place your hands on the head of the animal, symbolically saying that you were transferring your guilt for sin to that animal. They became your guilt offering. The animal was then sacrificed by the priest. And once that happened, you would leave the area. That was as close as you could ever get to God. Your relationship with God, that was as close as you could ever find yourself. Your access to God was severely hindered. That separation had everything to do with you. It had everything to do with God's very character of holiness and the proximity that God would allow your unholiness to be near Him. The inside of the actual tabernacle was divided, as I said, into two rooms separated by a very large and heavy curtain that they called the veil, which, by the way, as you read the New Testament, when Christ died, that veil in the temple was torn in half, symbolizing the very reality that access to God was now open. 
There were these two rooms, one called the holy place, the other one called the holy of holies or the very holy place or the most holy place. And you notice in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 2, you get a brief description of what's inside of those rooms. There was a tabernacle prepared. It says the outer one. That means the one that's in the first room inside the, the tabernacle itself in which there were a lamp, the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place, it says. So inside this first room is a lampstand, not like the lamp you might have in your bedroom on your side stand. It was gold. It had seven spires on it, much like the Jews who have the menorah today, and three branches on each side so that they could have light there all the time. And in the room was this sacred bread. There were 12 loaves that they would place on the table representing the 12 tribes of Israel, which each one was represented. And here's a loaf that was replaced constantly, providing an image and and a representation of God's constant provision for them. And of course, then... You have the second room. You notice verse 3. Behind the veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies. It says verse 3, the second veil, because the curtain on the front of the tent was considered the first veil guarding the holy place. And then inside of there was another veil the guarding the Holy of Holies or separating off the Holy of Holies. And the principal piece within the Holy of Holies was what we know as the Ark of the Covenant. Behind the second veil, there's this Holy of Holies having a golden altar. An altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant covered with all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar of holding manna. Aaron's rod, the rod which was used by God in the deliverance from Egypt and the table of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So you have the Ark of the Covenant made of wood, covered in solid gold covering, carrying the law, carrying Aaron's rod, and carrying a reminder of the provision of God as they wandered through the wilderness, a jar of manna. All these items signifying the very care of God, the very relationship of God with His people to give them what they needed to walk in obedience, to give them the sustenance they needed for life, to show them that He was faithful to deliver them even under the, under the most heinous of rulerships, being Egypt. And all of these things, by the way, showed a seriousness on God's part to how He's to be worshipped. This was specific. This is exactly how God had told Moses to have it done. This is exactly how the Israelites had to build it and to the specifications that God wanted because God had prescribed worship exactly as He said. In fact, in Numbers, I think around chapter 16 to 18, you can read about the death of Korah because of his rebellion and how God deals with it. Now on top of the ark was an area known as the mercy seat. And it was upon the mercy seat upon which God would, or the priest, I should say, the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the atonement of the nation's sin before God. 
And as we read here, that was only done once a year. All of this exercise was glorious. All of it was filled with symbolism. And yet, when you get a, so when you get a feel for the tabernacle, when you read this and you think about it and you read back in Exodus and you read in Numbers, you can begin to appreciate the worship that God prescribes and how He prescribes it to be. Very specific, very solemn, very sober-minded, very direct. And the worship there was continual. Every day, worshipers brought their sacrifices to the bronze altar inside the court. Day by day, week by week, not a day went by without that happening. And the priests would sacrifice all the time on behalf of the people. The priests would serve the people in the holy place, replacing the loaves of bread, keeping the lamps lit. But no one dared, no one dared to even look into the most holy place. No one dared even to go there at all. No one had personal, regular access to God. No one. Ministry in the Holy of Holies was a privilege for the high priest, and that only once a year on that specific day, the Day of Atonement. In fact, history tells us, this is a fascinating read. You might read about it sometime in the history of Jewish life, the history of the Day of Atonement. On the week before the Day of Atonement, the high priest would would go to the temple and he would continually practice what he needed to do on the Day of Atonement. How he needed to go through the very things that God had prescribed he must do while in the most holy place. Why? Because... To be in the Holy of Holies ceremonially unclean was instant death. To go in there unprepared and, 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 and not the way God prescribed was to be consumed by the very holiness of God. And so on the morning of the Day of Atonement, the high priest would offer a burnt offering as a sacrifice first for himself. Numbers 29 tells us that. Following that, he would ceremonially bathe his entire body, and then, instead of putting on his normal priestly garments that he might use to serve the people in the holy place, he would dress in all white. All of that symbolized that he was free from defilement, clean. And once he was dressed, then he would enter with a shallow bowl of burning coals with incense on these burning coals, and it would smoke, would fill the the room with an aroma. Once he did that, he would then exit and enter with blood. The blood of the bull as an offering for himself and for his whole household. Now, being the high priest was a privilege, a great privilege. But all of that privilege didn't remove his sinfulness. Even though he was the high priest, even though he was the spiritual guy, if you will, it didn't remove his sinfulness. There still needed to be a sacrifice for his own sin before he could ever represent the people to God. 
So he would sprinkle the blood on and before the mercy seat. In fact, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 14 tells us that he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the altar seven times in the Holy of Holies. And then having accomplished those things to the T without fail, perfectly, as he had practiced, he then was able to represent the people. He represented them as he brought the blood of the sacrifice for the people. And just like before, he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and seven times before the altar. And at the conclusion of all of that, there was great relief among the congregation of people and they rejoiced in a large time of congregational rejoicing. It was a great day. In fact, notice how it's stated here in verses 6 through 8. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship, right? That's what they do. That's a regular daily procedure for the people. That was how the worship was done. But into the second, only the high priest enters. And once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people, notice, committed in ignorance, Why did He do that? The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle still remains. Christ had not yet come. It was a way, but not yet fully disclosed until Christ came. Everything was there. The Old Covenant had the sanctuary. The Old Covenant had God's presence. The Old Covenant showed the holiness of God. It revealed the depth of man's sin. And no one could enter the presence of God without the shedding of blood. No change today. God is to be worshipped. God is holy. Sin is there. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It's all very serious. It's all very solemn. It's all very worshipful. And yet, under the old covenant, even with all of the ritual, even with all of the solemnity, even with all of the prescription, it was still inadequate. You say, why? Well, it was inadequate for two specific reasons. One, it limited access to God. No one had personal access to God. The only one who had any kind of nearness, proximity to God in any kind of way was the high priest, and that only once a year. And therefore, under the old covenant, there was also a second consequence that the effect in covering sin was limited. You only covered your sin for a time. According to verses 6 and 7, the high priest had limited access once a year, as I said. And if you were fortunate enough to be a priest, you got to maybe serve, and that was only for one week. And you served in the outer room, maybe the holy place, 
The reality is, for most people, if you weren't a priest at all, you had even less access to the things of God. All you could do was enter the outer court, enter before the bronze altar where your sacrifice might be offered, and forget it if you were a Gentile, and forget it if you were a woman. You had no access. No access to God, no hope of any forgiveness at all. So let's not be confused as to the point of the writer here in Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. He's comparing the old covenant, the old way. There was no direct access to God, period. You could not go to God on your own. You had no access to God. And it's also had its limit on a sin's covering Notice what it says in verse 9. Or, I'm sorry, in verse 7. He said this atonement, this one-year atonement that happens, the high priest goes, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and, notice, for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Agnoema means without knowledge. Committed without knowledge. Sins of ignorance. Sins that they were committing but didn't know they were committing sins. It was ignorant. It sinned without knowledge. And this is a, a this is a glaring reality of the old covenant because under the old system there was no provision for forgiveness of willful sin. Think about that. Just listen for a moment. You can turn there if you want. Numbers chapter 15. This is phenomenal. Numbers chapter 15, and this whole idea of willful sin, how God lays out for Israel dealing with this issue. Notice, beginning in verse 27, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally. Those ignorant sins. Making an atonement for him that he may be forgiven. And it's not a special law, right? Verse 29, you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who's a native among the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among you. So all the people are under the same thing. Ignorant, unintentional sins, bring a sacrifice, atone for it, that there might be forgiveness. But, verse 30, the person who does anything defiantly, willfully, whether he's a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Why? Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be on him. So the unintentional sinner gets to bring a sacrifice. The willful, defiant sinner who says of God's commandment, I'm not following that, doesn't get to do that at all. There's no provision for that. He just gets to go and 
face the guilt of his sinfulness. Think about it. The willful sinner, the defiant sinner, has a huge problem before God. There's no provision for a sacrifice. Nothing could free him from the guilt. Nothing could satisfy the holy wrath of God for his defiance. It wasn't available. Let me ask us this morning, as we're sitting here this morning, have you ever willfully sinned? Ever willfully known what God has commanded of you to do? And you go, yeah, I'm not going to do that today. I'm not going to do that in this moment. Well, under the old system, there was no forgiveness. And on the Day of Atonement, only the sins of ignorance were covered. You notice that back in Romans chapter 9, verse 7. Offered for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Unwillful. Not defiant. These are ignorant. Sins of the ignorant were covered. And in light of that, no one had a clear conscience. No one. Because everyone willfully sinned. So your conscience was never clear. It was never right before God. The external sacrifices only brought temporary, external covering of judgment. It was like a a, a, a delayed sentence, if you will. But it never cleared your guilty conscience before God. That's why the worshiper says, or that's why the writer of Hebrews says what he does in verse 9 and 10. According, accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offer which, offer, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Why? Because they're outside. They relate to food and drink and various washings, regulations, ritual, things for the body posed until the time of Reformation. Until the time when Christ would come. In other words, it was only external. It had no internal effect on the heart. But then you come to verses 11 through 14. The whole point and why the writer of Hebrews puts it all here. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation, not of this world. It wasn't a ritualistic reality. Not through the blood of bulls or goats and calves, but through His own blood He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus Christ, our high priest, didn't come into the holy place under the covering of incense like the priest, under the covering of smoke, so that He might carry out the ritualistic duty until the next time He could come and do it again. Or another high priest would come and fulfill that ritualistic duty. He didn't come in carrying the blood of animals. He didn't come in carrying blood of some animal that had been sacrificed for his life and for the life of those he's representing. He didn't come in for the sins done in ignorance. No. Christ appeared, it says in verse 11, as a high priest of the good things to come. 
In other words, it was the good things to come that were now the good things that have come. Verse 12 clearly tells us, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Having obtained, that's something accomplished in the past and has continuing results. Not something that needs to be done over and over and over again. He has obtained eternal redemption, which is eternal forgiveness by entering through His own blood. And here's the big difference in the sacrifice of Christ by faith, the guilty conscience is cleared before God. You don't go away wondering if Christ paid it all. That's why Paul could tell us in Romans chapter 8, that glorious sentence that we love so much, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now. Jesus entered the holy place once for all time. That's what it means. Once for all time. Don't get confused thinking that He died for all who will find their way in hell as if He paid for the sin of every human being that ever would walk the face of the earth and some must choose Him or their sin isn't paid for. No. Christ died for those whom He saves. He actually paid for the sins of all who would ever believe and those who refuse to believe their sins have not been paid for. He entered once for all time so that now in and through faith in Christ, there is now unlimited access to God. It isn't truncated anymore. We have full access and even more than access, all who come through Christ gain the unlimited effect of Christ's sacrifice on their behalf. A clean conscience. In fact, look at verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls, the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. If the old system could cover you for time, if God saw that as significant under His plan that would cover for a time, how much more? the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God. How will that cleanse your conscience from dead works that you might serve the living God? See, beloved, each and every one of us who believe in Jesus Christ by faith have had our sins forgiven in Jesus Christ. We are not guilty of the penalty of sin in any kind of way, and we have been freed to serve the living God. You see, all of the old ritual could do was symbolically clean the outside. All it could do was temporarily cover. It could only atone for the sins done in ignorance. It could never clean the conscience. But through Christ, the forgiveness of God affects the soul. 
made alive in Christ and every sin is forgiven. Every single sin. In fact, notice how the writer of Hebrews says it, beginning in verse 22, according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. According to the law, that's the requirement. Leviticus chapter 17, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Something had to die as a penalty for sin. The animal was the symbolic sacrifice. So according to the law, you could almost say that all things are cleansed with blood. Therefore, it was necessary for the copy of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. But the heavenly things themselves are with better sacrifices than animals. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one. Interesting. But he into heaven itself. Christ entered into heaven, the heavenly tabernacle, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So the priest enters the Holy of Holies here on earth, and he enters on behalf of the people. Christ, our priest, enters the heavenly Holy of Holies in the presence of God himself for us. Not so that he should offer himself often, as a high priest entered the holy place year by year with blood, not his own. No, no, otherwise Christ would need to suffer often if that was the case since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I said, I'll take care of sin once and for all. And so inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after that judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, he's going to appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. Listen, when Christ returns, we're not being saved from sin. We have been saved from sin. He's not returning to save us from sin. He's returning to fulfill the eternal promise for those who eagerly await. Notice verse 15 of that same chapter. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant in order that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. That's why Christ is coming. Christ is coming to give us what he has promised us all along, the blessed inheritance in Christ. All of the riches of the heavenly realm in Christ Jesus, as Ephesians tells us. Christ has accomplished the very thing the old ritual could never do. He has made the worshiper completely clean in conscience in regard to their effort before God to try to clean their own conscience because of their guilt. It's an inward and spiritual purification that is required to be in communion with God. Guilt of sin is to be removed 
And the guilt of sin is removed from the conscience by the saving work of Christ. Those who are in Christ by faith are free from guilt before God. And because they're free from guilt before God, because their sins have been forgiven, they are free to worship God in spirit and truth. See, that's what the Old Testament system could never do. It symbolized what was to come. It could never clear the conscience. And conscience cleansing forgiveness is available. But it's only available through the blood of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that in Christ, by faith alone, those who believe are new creatures. The old things have passed away. The new has come. So in Christ, anyone who will repent and trust in Him for their salvation, trust in Christ, can have their guilty, seared conscience cleared and forgiven before a holy God. In Christ, we have unhindered access to God. And through Christ, our guilty conscience is cleaned. What more could we need? What better worship can we offer? Well, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say in chapter 10, verse 19, Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, then let us draw near. Here's how we worship. Let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, because He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Beloved, that's why Paul said to the Corinthian church, examine yourself. Examine yourself. Be sure you are in the faith. Why? Because worship is serious. Worship of God is serious. And it's only for those who are right with God internally. All of the external things that we do by way of what we exercise in the Christian community are just externals if your heart isn't right. If your heart is not changed by saving faith through the power of God as you repent of your sins and believe. Well, as you prepare your hearts this morning for the communion table, I'll ask you to bow with me.
while I'm praying, maybe the men can make their way forward and prepare for a time of communion. Father, we're grateful that we can even think of these things. We're grateful that under your care and under your design, you made a way that all who would believe in you, their sins could be forgiven. That they would have a way into that holy place, and that's through Jesus Christ. There's no more veil. Full access to you. The ability to have our conscience cleaned. But only through your Son, Jesus Christ, who paid the eternal sacrifice, accomplished on behalf of sinners like each one of us here, Our sin was no worse than anybody else. We were no better than any other person. For the cost and wages of sin is death, which we all deserve. Spiritual death separated from you in an eternity of hellish torment. But you, because of your mercy and grace, chose to save. Save those who did not deserve it. You called us to yourself and you granted us faith and That faith was expressed upon Jesus Christ, whom you spoke about and showed us, who is the incarnate God, who sacrificed himself and paid the price for our sin. Now all we want to do is worship you. Worship in spirit and in truth. Lord, grant us wisdom. For the beginning of wisdom is knowing you the fear of you. Help us walk with that fear in our mind and heart, knowing that you are a living God and it's fearful to fall into the hands of the living God. So Lord, as we prepare a time to be obedient in the Lord's table, trust that you would attend to our time and affect our hearts as you deem necessary by the power of your Spirit, that we might be children that reflect your character to one another and to this world, that they might know Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.